I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 9, Genesis chapter 9. And we're going to be looking at several verses in that chapter, so you'll need a Bible. The guys have some. So as they make their way back, get their attention if you need a Bible. And you can keep that as our gift to you. We want everybody to own a copy of God's Word. In Genesis 9, it's marked there for you, but it's right at the beginning of the book. So how is it that two boys can grow up in the same home? They're reared by the same parents. They're taught at the same schools. They play in the same neighborhood, go to the same church. And everything about their upbringing and their heritage is the same. And yet they turn out so different. And the course of their lives has a completely different trajectory. Yet this is what the Bible tells us happened to two sons in the first human family. You know the story, Cain murders Abel early in human history. The Bible says that God gave Adam and Eve then another male child. In chapter 4 of this opening book of God's Word, the Bible says Eve gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. And then with Seth and the generations that follow, the very next verse makes this important comment. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, this is the fulfillment of what God promised just after sin entered his good world. When he gave a a ray of hope to our first parents. In Genesis 3, God said to them, actually addressing directly the serpent, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He, the one that I am going to send through the seed of the woman, will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And so from that, we see, and as the story goes forward, that there, we see that there are going to be two lines. There will always be a line of godly people and a line of ungodly people, even from the same family. And that's why I've titled this series in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, at which we've been looking now for several months, Our Problems and God's Promises. Because you see both in the stories of the first human family and the stories of those that follow. Now, at this point, I just want you to to ponder what makes the difference between the godly and the ungodly. What made the difference between Cain and Abel? Well, it was not their environment. They had the same environment. It was not their heredity. They had the same parents. And we start to get that answer when we see the next man that the Bible focuses on in the narrative of the opening chapters of Genesis. We're next introduced to a descendant of Seth. And remember, Seth, after Seth, People began to call upon the name of the Lord. And this descendant is Noah. And Noah is one of the godly people. Though, as we saw last week, we're going to see again today, that does not mean by any means he was sinless. The Bible tells us how it was that Noah became righteous. It tells us in chapter 6 and verse 8. But Noah. That is, but Noah in contrast to everybody else that the Lord has described in the verses just preceding. 
where the thoughts and inclinations of the heart were only evil continually. But Noah, in contrast to all of that, found favor. And that word for favor is grace in the eyes of the Lord. And as I pointed out last week, then it's not because of Noah. It's because of God's grace on Noah. And in Noah, God started over. God allowed humanity to follow its spiritual inclinations to their logical end, and the result was a world that was increasingly and unbearably evil. So God destroyed all humanity in the judgment of the flood, save Noah and his family. And so now Noah, in many ways, is in the position of Adam. God, for example, had told Adam to rule for him in what many of us call the dominion mandate of the very first chapter of the Bible. I remind you that it says God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. But now God has has started over. He's destroyed all of humanity except Noah and his family and all except the animals that were kept safe on the ark. And in chapter 9, And verse 1, God uses very similar language now as he instructs Noah. Notice verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. And so Noah is in very many ways in the same position as Adam. God has started over. Everyone before the flood came from Adam and everyone after the flood comes from Noah. And so the story continues in chapter 9 in verses 18 and 19. Verse 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Now, that last line, from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. That's to make sure that no one misunderstands that there were only eight people who survived the flood. It's Noah and seven others, and it is from these Three sons now that everyone that we're going to read about in chapter 10 in two weeks, next week's Mother's Day. I can't find a Mother's Day message in the table of nations in Genesis 10. So in two weeks, we'll pick it up again. And we will see there that you have all of these people who have been scattered throughout, throughout the whole earth. And in fact, in verse 32, if you'll just take a look at verse 32 of chapter 10. After this table of nations is is given, it says this, verse 32, these are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. So just these few and from them, everyone else. And the parallels between Noah and Adam are several. Here are a few more. Noah and Adam share the same profession. In chapter 9 and verse 20 of Noah, it says he was a man of the soil and he proceeded to plant a vineyard. Now that may remind you of 
Adam's occupation back in chapter 2 and verse 15. It says, the Lord God put the man in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And here again in chapter 9 now, we have the language of curse and blessing again. In verses 25 and 26 of chapter 9. Cursed be Canaan, verse 25. And praise be to the Lord. Literally, blessed be the Lord, verse 26. And of course, we've heard this cursing and blessing before. Going back to chapter 3, when sin entered the world and God pronounced consequences on the participants. And God said to the serpent in chapter 3, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. He said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. And he had said previously in giving that dominion mandate, God blessed the man and the woman and he said to them what we read earlier. And so you have that parallel. Now you've got the cursing and the blessing being reintroduced. And both Noah's and Adam's sin result in strife within their respective families. In the curse that Noah predicts upon his grandson Canaan in verse 25, notice what he says. Verse 25. The lowest of slaves will Canaan be to his brothers. So there's going to be that kind of strife within this family. And of course, Cain murdered Abel. Genesis chapter 4, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And both Adam and Noah experienced the shame of nakedness as well. You remember in Genesis chapter 3 that the Bible tells us as a result of the man and the woman disobeying God and eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Bible tells us then this in chapter 3. The eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked and they hid from the Lord God. And when next we find our hero, Noah, this is what we read of him at the end of verse 21. Noah became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Lay uncovered, lay naked inside his tent. So Noah is pictured as the second Adam. The father of the world after the flood. God has started over with another Adam and his family. Noah is the imperfect but blessed recipient of God's grace. And what happened in his family has some valuable application for us. And we're going to see four of those applications in the outline that we have inserted in your program. If you don't have that out yet, I encourage you to take that out. And after we ask God to help us, we're going to look at four applications from what happened with Noah and his sons. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we thank you again now for this time that we can come together and worship you. And now, especially, Father, we ask you to help us as we open your word to focus upon what you tell us and to focus how what you tell us on what on how what you tell us applies to us, us individually, us personally in our day to day lives. And as a result of this, may we go from this place better equipped to serve you and bring glory to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. And one of the first things you should notice about this episode with Noah and his sons is this. The first thing I say in your outline is changing a dress does not change the heart. 
Changing a dress does not change the heart. That is, changing where you are and changing your circumstances does nothing to change the heart. Noah and his family had the opportunity to start over in an environment that was free of the actions of others being imposed on them. God started over, but things reverted to the way they were. Here we find Noah in verse 21, and he's drunk and he's naked. And we have curses being given to his son Ham for reasons that we will see uh, to his grandson Cain and through Ham for reasons we'll see in just a bit. Now, why is that? God starts over, but things revert to the way they were. Well, the reason is this. It's given in chapter 8 and verse 21. The middle of that verse, chapter 8 and verse 21, says this. Every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. (laughs) Now, friends, that's after the flood. That's after everybody except eight people has been wiped out. And then starting over, you still got eight people. And here God says, every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. That's still the deal with these guys. There's, this is very much then the same verdict as God rendered on the world when he determined to destroy all but these eight souls, Noah and his family. You remember back in chapter 6 and verse 5. God said of the world then, before the flood, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. So we start over. And we get rid of all the bad people. But not quite. Because there are still eight bad people. And there are still eight bad people because there are still people. And so the starting over project doesn't quite work. And it's because changing address, changing environment, changing your circumstances cannot change the heart. The prophet Jeremiah asked this question. Can a leopard change, that should say, its spots? Can a leopard change its spots? And the anticipated answer is, of course, no. And then that passage goes on to say, Can a leopard change its spots? No. Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Why is that? Because of what chapter 8 and verse 21 of Genesis says. That the heart of humanity is evil from childhood. And Jeremiah said famously in chapter 17 and verse 9, the heart is beyond cure. Well, that's a hopeless position then, isn't it? If changing a dress and changing your environment and getting away from the bad people doesn't do it because we're part of the bad people and the heart is really the source, but the heart is beyond cure, then what do we do? And Jesus reinforced this when he said, when he walked the earth, Mark chapter 7 says he called the crowd to him and he said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. So what do I need? What do you need? What does everyone in this world need who fits the description of chapter 8 and verse 21 that from childhood the heart of humanity is sinful and inclined toward evil? Well, we need a new heart, clearly. 
And thanks be to God, God has promised that new heart through the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36, God says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. All right. I trust that's all clear. That that's the problem. And we see reinforced that that's the problem, namely the heart. That our problems are an inside job, not an external thing. We see that reinforced by the fact that God starts over. He starts over with one on whom he has set his grace in Noah. Noah was overall a righteous man. The Bible describes him in very glowing terms. And yet we find Noah sinning and then his son Ham sinning grievously. So what does all this mean for us? Well, it means that our sin, my sin and yours, is an inside job, not something external to us. And you think, and I tend to think, that if I can just change my set of circumstances, then all will be well. If I could just get away from some of these sinful people, then all would be well. You know, and God got rid of a bunch of sinful people. And it didn't work out. But you think about the person or circumstance that is dominating your thinking today and most of your days and most of the waking hours of your days. It's that problem you're having with your spouse. If my spouse would just straighten up or if I could just get a different one. And of course, that's what many people do. Let's just trade this one in for another one. Or that circumstance that I'm in. And in all of that circumstance, that relationship, that boss, whatever it is, your heart is interacting with that circumstance. And you are either react, interacting with that circumstance before God, in the presence of God, transacting with God, asking God what He has for you to learn in that circumstance or that relationship. You're becoming either bitter or you're becoming better. And if you allow yourself to become bitter, then you look at the circumstances of the problem rather than your own heart's reactions. Think about this. How often does trouble find trouble? I mean, ain't it the truth? Forgive the grammar. But you've heard it and you've seen it. And maybe you've done it. Trouble just knows how to find trouble. Why is that? Because changing the address does not change the heart. And friends, this means a number of things for us. But it means isolationist Christianity does not work. And we've got various forms of isolationist Christianity. And they're well-intended. If I can just keep my kids away from other kids, then my kids will be pure. The Duggars found out that's not true, didn't they? And many other families have found out that isolationist Christianity is not true, does not work because it has a mistaken view of the source of sin. You can take the boy or girl out of the world, but you can't take the world out of them. Because it's a heart job. It's an inside job. Changing a dress does not change the heart. And I would just ask you, friends, to consider, yea, reconsider that change that you're thinking about making instead of dealing with the heart 
that is contributing to the situation you are in and how you're experiencing it. Changing a dress does not change the heart. Secondly, in your outline. Choosing actions does not control consequences. Choosing our actions is one thing. Controlling the consequences is quite another. Choosing actions does not control consequences. The Bible tells us in verse 21, Noah was drunk. Noah chose to drink. And he ended up drunk. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about the dangers of alcohol. So this is an opportunity for me to beat on alcohol for a bit. Because the Bible beats on it for a bit. In Proverbs 20, the Bible says, Wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. The book of Proverbs, and and you know that's a book of wisdom, right? So if you want wisdom, if you want to live in actions that are applying truth in a profitable way, the book of Proverbs gives you that. And Proverbs 23 asks this, Who has woe? And who has sorrow? And who has strife? And who has complaints and needless bruises and bloodshot eyes? And then it gives the answer. It's those who linger over wine. And then says, do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. Why? Because you can choose to drink, but you don't choose the consequences. And the next verse says this, in the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. And then it describes a few verses after that, still in Proverbs chapter 23, the actions of one who has imbibed. They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. (laughs) Feeling no pain. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so I can find another drink? Now, it's insane, isn't it? And you know the definition of insanity is continuing to do the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. And here you have these kinds of things happening, but when can I do it again? Now, I'm sure that Noah did not intend to be fallen down drunk and naked when he took the first drink. And he most certainly did not intend what followed that we're going to see. But hear this, friends. Sin has a way of coming back to bite you in ways you did not anticipate. That's why the Bible says this. You may be sure that your sin will find you out. That sin will affect you with consequences and in ways that you did not think about and did not intend. Often sin has unintended consequences. Unintended. But you're responsible for the unintended consequences when the initial act that led to those was intended. You see, Noah didn't intend all that we're going to read in just a bit. He didn't intend any of that. But he did intend to drink. And Noah got drunk 
And Noah can't control the consequences after that. Well, okay. All right, Pastor, I I don't drink. Move on. Or I'll stop drinking. Good. But for those of you who don't drink or are not tempted by that, I fit in that category. I've never had any. Now, that's not because I'm a good guy. I've never been exposed to alcohol. 54 years old, I've never been exposed to alcohol. I have never been in a situation to be tempted to drink alcohol. And so it's not because I'm a good guy, but I tell you this, a good God has kept me from that, and I thank him that he has. But okay, it's not alcohol for me. It's not alcohol for a lot of you. What about gossip? You see, you can choose the action, but you can't control the consequences once those words come out of your mouth. Once those words leave your mouth, you don't control them anymore. They're now the possession of somebody else, and they can do with what they will. And the Bible warned us about that, didn't it? In James chapter 3, the tongue is like a spark that sets a whole forest on fire. It goes out of control. You can control the initial action. You can't control the consequences. You could fill in all sorts of sins here. I'll just imbibe in pornography a little bit. And friend, you don't control where that goes. And you didn't intend it to go where it is. But now you find yourself entrapped by it. You know that's what sin does, right? It deceives, it draws you in, and then you're trapped. Changing a dress does not change the heart. Choosing actions does not control consequences. And I say thirdly in your outline. Confronting sin does not require humiliating the sinner. Confronting sin does not require that you humiliate the sinner. Now here's where that comes in. You have Noah. He is drunk and he is naked in his tent. And verse 22 says this. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked. Now to this point, Ham has done nothing wrong. He's come upon his father in a compromised situation accidentally. It's what he does next that shows his character. Verse 22 says, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked. And then it says, and he told his two brothers outside the tent. And that is a violation of the fifth commandment. To honor your father and your mother. Ham is intent on humiliating his father. Now, why is he intent on that? We're not told, but you can imagine. You know, Noah has done something that is not to Ham's liking. And Ham's nursing a grudge, whatever it is, he takes this opportunity, seizes upon it to humiliate his father. Now, let me be clear. This is not a little child. Ham is a grown man. He's a married man, has children of his own. 
So this is not a little child coming upon his father, doing something sinful, and then just instinctively running immediately to tell mommy or someone else. That's perfectly understandable. And it's not a case of hiding something to protect a perpetrator or a predator. That's not what we have here, and please know I'm not suggesting that. There are sins that must be exposed for the safety of others. But that's not what we we have here. Ham is a grown man who should have confronted his father privately. But instead, he could not wait to use it against him. And in contrast to the actions of Ham, verse 23 tells us the response of Noah's other two sons, Shem and Japheth. Verse 23 says, but Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. When they walked, then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. That's the level of respect that they had for their father. Not looking to use this against him, but rather to to cover literally his sin. It's a righteous act to go out of your way to not humiliate someone who has fallen. And to deal with that person in grace. James tells us mercy triumphs over judgment. And whenever mercy can be extended instead of judgment, that's the preferable course. Now, judgment has to come. When somebody's recalcitrant, unrepentant in their sin, then something has to be done. The Bible prescribes that. God does that. He tells us to do that. But we see an example of this kind of righteous heart extended to another in the story of the birth of Jesus. And you remember the story. We're going to read from Matthew 1 in just a moment, but but Mary is found with child. She's pregnant. But she's engaged to be married to Joseph. And in biblical times, when you were engaged, that was tantamount to being married. In fact, to break the engagement, you had to have a, a bill of divorce in order to break the engagement. And now here's Mary expecting she's never been with Joseph and Joseph and doesn't know until later what the real story is. So he's confronted now with this problem. And here's what the Bible tells us. In Matthew 1, Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant. Yet Joseph did not want to expose her to public disgrace. So he had in mind to divorce her quietly. He doesn't know what's going on. His first reaction, she's clearly sinned. She has betrayed me, and yet he still extends mercy and love to Mary. And that's one, one of the characteristics of love given to us in the Bible in 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not dishonor others. And love does not delight in evil. And so, friends, when we know something about someone, that then is a test of our love for that individual. What am I going to do with that now? Am I going to seek to see that person restored? Am I going to go to that person in love and and call them to repentance? Or am I going to use that juicy morsel of gossip and spread it to others 
and seek to humiliate another. Love does just the opposite. So changing a dress does not change the heart. Choosing actions does not control consequences. Confronting sin does not require humiliating the sinner. And then lastly, challenging circumstances do not determine destiny. Challenging circumstances do not determine our destiny. Now, back in verse 18 of of chapter 9, where the sons of Noah are named, one grandson is also named. And maybe as we were reading these verses, maybe that occurred to you. Because we've read a couple of times now about Ham and Shem and Japheth. But then this other guy shows up. A grandson. Verse 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then notice this parenthetical note the author gives us. Ham was the father of Canaan. And then again in verse 22. Ham is mentioned along with this important fact about him. Ham, the father of Canaan. Now, why is the fact that Ham is the father of Canaan singled out? Well, it's because Ham was apparently the youngest of Noah's sons and Canaan the youngest of Ham's sons. If you look at chapter 10, just flip over to chapter 10 and verse 6, where the descendants of Noah's three sons are given, and in the section on Ham, verse 6 says this, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, in that order. In all likelihood, Canaan is listed last because he's the youngest. Ham, the youngest of Noah. And now, the youngest son of Noah is going to have something happen to his youngest son as consequence for his dishonoring his father. Because he treated his father in this manner, the youngest son of Ham will experience the consequences of sin. And in verses 24 to 27, Noah predicts what will happen to his grandson Canaan and his descendants. Verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. Now, I just have to pause here briefly to point out something that some of you may have heard about uh, in your Christian walk. You may have read this in the past. But did you know that there have been many Bible teachers over the years that have talked about the curse of Ham? And do you know what some of them have said the curse of Ham is? That it's, it's slavery, and in particular, slavery inflicted on Africans. This was used to justify slavery. Now, it's biblical nonsense. One, the curse was not upon Ham, but upon, but upon Canaan. And it says... Nothing about the particular ethnicity. And so it was used to justify slavery and it was used to justify slavery and discrimination among people that if I named them, you would know them. And if you want to know, I don't have time to go through it. If you want to know, I'll be happy to talk to you privately about it. 
Canaan is, and, and Canaan's descendants become then a huge figure in biblical history. As we move from throughout the book of Genesis and even later into the book of Joshua, as God's people are to conquer the land, and you remember who is populating the land? It's the Canaanites. It's the descendants of this grandson of Noah who has this curse, Canaan. 35 times in the remaining chapters of Genesis, the phrase land of Canaan is used. And what became of these people, these descendants of of Canaan? Well, they became a people who did detestable things before the Lord. In the land that the Lord gave to the Israelites. In fact, here's what Leviticus 18 says. God addresses the Israelites as a, in, in anticipation of eventually going into the land. And he says, detestable things were done by the people who lived in the land before you. Who were the people who lived in the land before them? Canaanites. And the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. And so God ordered that the land be made free of this influence when the Israelites entered the land of Canaan. Deuteronomy chapter 7 says, When the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Yikes. No mercy on the Canaanites. Now, warning. The description I'm going to give for you of Canaanite debauchery is graphic. It's one of the blessings of having children's worship in another part of the building. The Canaanites transformed the scriptural depiction of the God of Israel into a castrated weakling who likes to play with his own excrement and urine. The Canaanite pantheon of gods was incestuous. Baal has sex with his mother Asherah, his sister Anat, and his daughter Pidre, and none of this is presented in Canaanite literature pejoratively. Canaanite religion was a fertility cult that involved temple sex. Ishtar, also known as the Queen of Heaven, became the woman among the gods, patron of eroticism and sensuality, of conjugal love as well as adultery, of brides and prostitutes, transvestites and pederasts. Sexual contact with a person whose whole life was devoted to the goddess was tantamount to union with the goddess herself. The Canaanites even remake the God of the Bible after their own image and portray him ceremonially as having sex with two goddesses. Molech was a Canaanite underworld deity represented as an upright bullheaded idol with a human body in whose belly a fire was stoked and in whose outstretched arms a child was placed that would be burned to death. And the victims were not only infants. Children as old as four were sacrificed. The problem with the city of Sodom. You remember Sodom and Gomorrah? These were Canaanite cities. It wasn't just sex among consenting adults. The men of Sodom, both young and old, tried to rape visitors to, Solomon, to, to Sodom, Genesis 19. 
there should be no surprise that bestiality would occur among the Canaanites since their gods practiced it. From the Canaanite epic poem, The Baal Cycle, we learn, Mightiest Baal hears, he makes love with a heifer in the outback, a cow in the field of death's realm. He lies with her 70 times 7, mounts 80 times 8, she conceives and bears a boy. All right, that's the end of that. But I wanted you to have a full understanding as to why a righteous and holy God is absolutely justified in all of his actions. And when God says you eliminate them from the land, he has good reason for that, as our God always does. And God ordered men, women, children, and animals, everything that breathes, to be destroyed in Canaan. Now, how is that justified? Well, the sins of the fathers... Noah says in this curse, are going to be visited to the third and fourth generation. But, but how is that fair? Well, here's how. The sins of the fathers become the sins of the children. That is, the children freely commit those sins themselves. Deuteronomy 24 says this, Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each one will die for their own sin. But you say to yourself, children haven't sinned, Right? Now, friends, this is where you got to get your you got to get your theology straight. And if you've come and you've listened, then you should have it straight. Because in the opening chapters of the Word of God, the Book of Genesis, particularly Genesis chapter three, where we're told about the entrance of sin into God's good world, there I explained in some detail the fact that Adam was our federal head, our representative. He represented us perfectly. We sinned in Adam. And so we are justly guilty of Adam's sin. All have sinned in Adam and are sinful from conception. All of us. So there's nobody from God's standpoint who gets ripped off. All that can happen is God in His grace gives us better than we deserve. No one can get worse than they deserve. Because of our cosmic treason against God. But we don't get that. And I'm, I'll, I'll be done soon, but we've got to drill that home. We think that, you know, there are some people that are just so bad and then they deserve what they get what they deserve. <laughs> Look, you don't want to get what you deserve. And I don't want to get what I deserve. Jesus confronted this in Luke chapter 13. There were some who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. All right, Pilate, you remember him? Pilate had apparently killed people while they were worshiping. And some come to Jesus and they say, Hey, God, where were you when these good people were worshiping? And Pilate comes along and murders them. What about that? And here's Jesus' answer. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no. And then he makes it personal. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. And I always say when I read that passage, Jesus did not take Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. 
He just told the truth. And then Jesus continues to talk. You brought up the Galileans who were murdered. Jesus then brings this up. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam, I'll go you one better, (laughs) fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So friends, we've got to lose the idea. We've got to lose the idea that there are people who are mistreated in what happens because because of our sin, because of our treason against God. It is only because of God's grace that we are here and alive and certainly only because of God's grace that we belong to Him. Now, I've said in this point, challenging circumstances, being a Canaanite, Think about growing up in that environment. But even challenging circumstances do not determine our destiny because there is always the wild card of the blessed grace of God. And the Bible tells us about some who escaped. One in particular I want to point out to you in our remaining time. You remember the story of God telling his people to go in and conquer the land that he had given to them. The Canaanites were there. They were to go into the cities of Ai and and, and Jericho and other cities in the land and to conquer them. And Joshua led that conquest. Remember that in the sixth book of your Bible, Joshua. But they encountered a, a woman there in Jericho, a woman named Rahab. And here's what the Bible says of that encounter in Joshua chapter 2. Rahab said to these spies that went in to check it out, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. She goes on to say, We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for when you came out of, for you, when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. Now hear this. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Here's a Canaanite upon whom God gives his grace. And he turns her heart toward him. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, in faith's hall of fame, guess who shows up? By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And God will extend his grace to the world, including Canaanites and others. He will extend his grace to the world through another of Noah's sons, in particular Shem and a Shemite that we're going to meet in just a couple of weeks, none other than Abraham. So I asked you at the beginning. What makes the difference in the direction that people go, people even from the same family? You may have had many thoughts about that, but the right answer is this. It's the grace of God in the life of that person. And Noah was the second Adam. But did you know the Bible tells us in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 45, Jesus is the last Adam. The last Adam. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, a life-giving spirit. And so, friends, God is extending his grace to you. And he is inviting you to trust him. 
And there is only one escape from the just judgment of this holy God, and that is Jesus. And the last Adam has come and has done for you what the first Adam was supposed to do. The first Adam was supposed to dominate in that dominion mandate for God and to render all things for the glory of God. But he failed. He disobeyed God. Jesus has succeeded where the first Adam failed. He obeyed God in his life perfectly. And he died on the cross, an absolutely perfect man, as a substitute for your sin and my sin. And the penalty that he paid for your sin is applied to you when you come to him believing who he is and what he did. He's extending that grace to you. He doesn't owe it to you. He doesn't owe it to me. But he's extending it to you. So we're going to bow in just a moment. And when we do, you flee, you run to the cross of Jesus. And those of you that have already done that, you thank God for his grace in your life. The undeserved, unmerited, unearned grace of God. Your take-home truth is this. Of all the influences in our lives, God's grace is the most powerful. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for this sacred opportunity to open your word and to be instructed. We thank you, Lord, that in the narrative of all of those that we see in the pages of Scripture, that though the circumstances are different, the names are different, there are some things that simply do not change. Your character cannot change. And so you are the same throughout all of these stories. You are the holy God who has the right to judge sin, but you are the gracious God who desires to forgive sin. You have been and you always will be. And Lord, we have not changed. People are still sinful and foolish and unrepentant. And so I see myself in Noah and I see myself in in Canaan and I see myself in, in all of these characters. And so Lord, we see ourselves, but we see you. And we see your interaction with your your creatures. Thank you, Lord, for being gracious to us, though we do not deserve it. Thank you for calling us out of the world and to yourself and the safety, the eternal safety that is Jesus. And so, Lord, I thank you in this moment. I thank you with my life and for eternity. And I pray that you would do the same for some in this room right now. Graciously call them out of their condition and to yourself out of the world and to yourself. And may they become lives then that bring glory to you and lips that praise you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.